as the world wants to reject the resurrection and wants us to reject it as well. We have historic evidence that indicates he actually rose physically from the dead. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to episode 42. Today we're going to take a look at John chapter 20, verses 1 to 29. And what I want to do is take a look at the significance of Jesus' resurrection. Now, I'm not saying this is a comprehensive study, or there aren't other things that are significant about his resurrection. But I do want to point out a couple points of significance about Jesus' resurrection from John chapter 20, verses 1 to 29. So with that in mind, let me begin. At this point of the story, Jesus had been crucified just days before, and the hope of Jesus' disciples had been dashed. Think of the pain they must have felt, the fear, the anguish. Their teacher and their hope was lying in a tomb. Their hopes were shattered by the Jewish leaders and the Romans who crucified him. Many of them saw his broken body nailed to the cross. What a gruesome sight they must have seen as his blood dripped from multiple wounds. Their dull, sinful minds could never conceive what was about to happen. So then we see that Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. John says it was still dark. But Mary noticed something strange. The stone had been taken away from the tomb, and she immediately thought what all of us would have thought. Someone had taken the body. She ran to Peter and the other disciple and said that they had taken his body from the tomb, but she wasn't sure where they had laid him. Isn't it interesting that she never thought resurrection? Well, the disciples didn't think that either. And to be fair to all of them, you and I wouldn't have thought resurrection. We would have thought somebody stole the body. So they ran to the tomb, and when they arrived, they found the burial cloths lying there. The body of Jesus was gone. Then verse 8 tells us that the other disciple saw and believed. What does that mean, that the one disciple saw and believed? Well, first let me say that the other disciple is John. And we won't go into that discussion, but simply know that the one described as the other disciple is John. Second, the fact that John saw and believed means he believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, how is it that John all of a sudden believed that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, he saw the burial cloths, and he was able to conclude what had happened. What he saw were the burial cloths were lying there as they had been wrapped around Jesus. But there was no Jesus inside. Try to imagine what John saw. You wrap a body in burial cloths, you put the body in a tomb. A couple days later, you go into the tomb, and you see the burial cloths have the form of the one they were wrapped around, and yet the body is gone. You see, that's what John saw. The burial cloths were not unwrapped, yet there was no body inside. So Jesus was no longer in the burial cloths. And R. Kent Hughes claims that the burial cloths still had the form of Jesus' body, but he wasn't inside. And that means that his corpse wasn't taken by the Romans or the Jews. I mean, think about it. They wouldn't have pulled him out of the burial cloths. If they're going to steal his body, they would have taken the whole thing. They would have just taken his body and left the burial cloths. And had they done that, they would have unwrapped the burial cloths and left them behind, which means they wouldn't have taken his shape. They would have just been cloths laying on the ground. So the conclusion is that the body of Jesus wasn't taken. He rose from the dead, and the burial cloths are evidence of that. The others, Peter and Mary, they didn't quite understand yet. 
Verse 9 says they didn't understand that Jesus must rise from the dead. So the disciples returned home, but Mary stays outside the tomb, and she's weeping. She looks in the tomb, and she sees two angels where the body of Jesus was. And interestingly, they weren't there when the disciples went into the tomb. So they ask Mary why she's weeping, and she responds by saying they had taken her Lord away, and she doesn't know where they put him. She then turned around and saw Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Then Jesus asks why she's weeping, and she thinks he's the gardener. And this tells us something. Jesus had a human body in his resurrected state. She thought he was a human being, and that's because he is. But she didn't recognize him till he calls her by name. Now she recognizes him as the risen Lord. Well, Mary was so pleased to see our risen Savior that she didn't realize that Jesus wasn't risen to remain on earth. He had a new assignment, and we want him there. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and he serves a very important role there. First, he's interceding for you. Paul tells us that in Romans 8, verse 34. In his role of intercession, Jesus is praying for you at the position of honor. He's at the right hand of God. But not only that, he also intercedes by perfecting our prayers. And then furthermore, he's your defense lawyer. He's defending you before the Father. John tells us that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. He's our advocate before the Father. Jesus is your defense. Well, returning back to John chapter 20, Jesus rose physically from the dead, and we have evidence. Burial claws in the tomb maintain the shape of Jesus, showing that the Romans didn't carry his body away. We have Mary thinking Jesus is a gardener, which proves that he's a human after he rose from the dead. And this should give us hope. As the world wants to reject the resurrection and wants us to reject it as well, we have historic evidence that indicates he actually rose physically from the dead. So later on that day in the evening, the disciples were in a location behind a locked door. And they locked the door because they feared the Jews. Now, this is an important point because of what happens next. Jesus appeared among them. Well, how did he get in? He wasn't there when they locked the door. Well, Jesus is in a resurrected body. And it seems his resurrected body is not limited in the same ways that our bodies are. Now, I don't want to speculate about the physics of his resurrected body, but certainly a locked door isn't a problem for him. But we know that Jesus is in the same body in which he was crucified because his hands and side still have the wounds from the crucifixion. So the disciples were in a room, they locked the door, and yet Jesus appears. And notice the first thing Jesus says to his disciples when he stood among them. Peace be with you. Why did he say this? He's letting his disciples know that all is well. They have peace with God. After Jesus proved his resurrection by showing them his hands inside, they were glad to see him. And again, he tells them, peace be with you. But he adds to his comments this time. In verse 21, he tells them as the Father sent him, he is sending them. For the past three years, Jesus had been preparing his disciples to be leaders in the church. Now he's sending them out to do his work. But know that it's not the disciples who build Christ's church. Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, verse 18, that he builds his church, and he does so through his disciples. They're not like any other earthly corporate leader. They aren't in power. Jesus is, and he commissioned them to go do his work. 
Yet Christ is so sovereign that their decisions are his decisions. Take a look at verses 22 and 23. He tells them to receive the Holy Spirit. And if they forgive the sins of any, those sins are forgiven. Christ is in power through them. The resurrected Christ works through the men he sends. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is the one building his church. And as he sends his people throughout the world, the good news of Christ is communicated. The people of God respond in faith. And it's Jesus who's really doing the work, not you and me. Well, Thomas wasn't among the disciples that night. And when the other disciples told him that they had seen the resurrected Lord, he refused to believe. He wanted evidence in order to believe, and that evidence was nothing less than to touch the wounds on Jesus' body. Are you able to see the arrogance of Thomas? I'm not throwing him under the bus. All of us would have done the same thing. We're no different than Thomas. It's the arrogance of man. You see, we're telling God, I'm in authority. You must prove yourself to me. I will not believe until you provide sufficient evidence. And God is so gracious to accommodate us. Christianity is an evidence-based religion. It's not about your feelings. It's not about your experience. It's not even about good living. It's a religion founded upon facts and historic evidence. It's either true or it's not. And the facts and the historic evidence indicate its truth. But do you realize what Thomas is doing? He's demanding that God prove himself instead of believing the testimony of others and what Jesus said to him before about his resurrection. You see, the Old Testament pointed to the resurrection of Christ, and Jesus told his disciples that he would rise from the dead. And now you have the other disciples telling Thomas that Jesus was risen from the dead. This shouldn't have been a mystery to Thomas or any other disciple. But like the unbelief of Adam, Thomas didn't believe God. The arrogance of man demands that God prove himself. And again, though God doesn't owe us proof, our gracious God is patient with our stubborn unbelief. Eight days later, the disciples were again inside with a locked door, and Jesus appeared. And again, he comes with words of peace. And then he tells Thomas in verse 27 to put his finger in the nail holes and place his hand on his side where the spear wound was. And he tells him, don't disbelieve believe. This is not some spiritual Jesus in front of them. This is the resurrected Christ in the same body in which he was crucified. And now we see the humble heart of faith from Thomas. He responds in verse 28 by calling Jesus his Lord and his God. Now I want to take a moment to examine Thomas's response. First, he recognizes the resurrected Christ. Now he believes and his response is evidence of his faith. Second, he acknowledges that Jesus is the Lord. In the original language, the words Lord and God have a definite article, the, and John uses a possessive pronoun, my or mine. So he's saying the Lord of mine or my Lord. But notice also that he acknowledges that Jesus is God. Not a God, but the God. Thomas is saying, you are the God of mine, or my God. In other words, I have no other gods. You're my God. But it also means that there are no other gods. Jesus is the God of the universe. You see, Thomas isn't a polytheist. He doesn't believe in many gods. 
He believes in one God, and he recognizes that Jesus is that God. Well, then Jesus makes a statement about you and me in verse 29, and he tells Thomas that he believed because he saw Jesus, but we are blessed because we believe yet we haven't seen Jesus. You see, Jesus isn't walking around on earth today. We can't see his resurrected body, but we believe. And Jesus is saying in verse 29 that we are blessed because of our faith. Well, shortly after Jesus says this to Thomas, he ascends to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God. He is no longer physically on earth, so we don't have the luxury of seeing our Savior with our own eyes here on earth. All we have is the testimony of those before us. Yet their testimony is valid and substantial. First, we have the prophecy of the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 16, verse 10, says that God's Holy One will not see corruption. Well, that's speaking of Christ and his resurrection. His body didn't rot in the grave. He rose from the dead. So this is a clear reference to the resurrection of Christ. Second, we have the historic evidence of the resurrection of Christ in the four Gospels. And finally, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, that Christ showed himself to more than 500 brothers. And Paul says that most of them are alive. So when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, there were more than 250 eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. Now, they may not be alive today, but they were when Paul wrote the letter. And his point was that Christ's resurrection was verifiable because you could talk to these people who saw the resurrected Christ. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but it seems to me that 250 witnesses are substantial in a court of law. The point is, the evidence is more than the four Gospels. This is reliable testimony that we have. But ultimately, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to believe in our dear Savior based on their testimony. You see, you are blessed because you believe, yet you have not seen the resurrected Christ. So what's the significance of the resurrection? Well, there are several things to note here. First, the resurrection is proof that Christianity is true, and all other religions that deny the resurrection of Christ are false. On the other hand, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity would be false, and another religion would be true. But the prophetic and historic evidence and the eyewitness testimony affirm that Jesus rose from the dead. That makes Christianity true. So the resurrection of Christ is the key doctrine in the Christian faith. Second, the resurrection of Christ is a statement of victory. This is proof that Jesus conquered death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 and 55, Paul quotes Isaiah 25, verse 8, and Hosea 13, verse 14. And he asks a rhetorical question. Where is death's victory? Where is death's sting? You see, Paul's making a point. Death lost. It no longer has power over the people of God. So the resurrection of Christ is a declaration of victory. Christ has risen from the dead. Christ has won. And then finally, the resurrection of Christ is a testimony of what's going to happen to you and me. We will certainly die physically, unless Jesus returns before we do. And our bodies will lie in the ground until Jesus our Savior comes. And then something marvelous is going to happen. And Jesus told us what's going to happen in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. And he says, a time is coming where the Son of Man is going to call us out of our tombs, and we're going to rise from the dead. 
At the voice of Christ, the grave will relinquish its grip, and you and I will rise from the dead and enter into eternal glory with God in body and soul. You see, that's where our hope lies. Not in a better life here on earth, but in eternal life with our Heavenly Father. Life in the eternal Sabbath, where we will no longer suffer, we will never sin, we will never die. That's where our Savior is taking us. That's the promised land. So stand firm in your faith and eagerly wait for the return of our resurrected Christ, because at that time, we too will rise from the dead and enter into our eternal Sabbath with God. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at thefoxdenjournal.com. If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. And remember, faith comes by hearing.